he does his exam and he says, I think I want to do a biopsy. <laughs> and I look at him and I say, why? <laughs> and he says, just, just a little irregularity. That morning, I had read, God has not appointed you for wrath. What Christ bought for me is not escape from trouble or sickness or death. He just took care of the most important things. Welcome to the CrossFit Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with John Piper. John is the founder and teacher of DesiringGod.org and the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He served for 33 years as the senior pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and as the author of more than 50 books, including Why I Love the Apostle Paul, 30 Reasons. Today, John and I discuss the one Bible verse that changed everything about how he viewed God, himself, and the Christian life. He also reflects on why it took him eight years to preach through the book of Romans, what he thinks of criticisms of the term Christian hedonism, and what went through his mind the moment he heard he had cancer. Let's get started. John Piper, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So a few years back, you had a routine checkup with the doctor, and little did you know that appointment would start you on a journey that ultimately led you to receiving what you've called an exquisite, perfectly timed, perfectly expressed gift. Can you walk us through what happened and what that gift was? Well, what a privilege to talk about that. Um, I had had uh, prostate issues for years and uh, had other minor surgeries. And, uh, and so the, I go to visit my urologist once a year, and this time he's, he does his exam and he says, I think I want to do a biopsy. <laughs> and I look at him and I say, why? <laughs> and he says, just, just a little irregularity. I said, okay, when would you like to do it? He said, now. I thought that was very strange. I said, okay. He said, well, just uh, put on that gown over there and I'll be back with the machine. They're going to do a biopsy machine now without any preparation. So he walks out of the room and I'm left alone for maybe, I don't know, five, ten minutes. And that morning, uh, I think, if not one or two days before, I had read First Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not appointed you for wrath. I mean, just that negative statement came to me with sweetness. God, you are not appointed for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ so that whether you live or die, <laughs> you belong to the Lord. So it was no word from the Lord that this is going to be benign or going to be a non-death sentence. It was just, I'm here and you're not condemned. And that's really central to my theology of suffering, theology of life, is that what Christ bought for me is not escape from trouble or sickness or death. He just took care of the most important things. Yeah, you, you write 
you write from the book, what I needed at that moment was a comfort far more solid and lasting and unshakable than a few more years of life after cancer. Absolutely. I needed just what I got. That's not wrath. You're destined for salvation. And are there times that since that diagnosis that you've had to return, that you feel like you've needed to return again to that solid, lasting, unshakable comfort? Yes, regularly. Mm-hmm. And, and what's, what's sweet about it, as a, as a pastor, I was still a pastor when that happened. It's been 12 years since that moment. Um, is that not only do I circle back to First Thessalonians 5, 9 as a memorable gift, but it has come to me for the sake of others. I mean, as pastors, I think that's why the Lord brings us into many of our difficulties, along with other reasons, namely that with the comfort with which you have been comforted by God, you may now comfort others. So that verse was given to me, not just for me. Mm. It was given to me for anybody that he brings me into context, uh, contact with. In fact, I can't, I can't remember just um, the timing of it, but I wrote a little little booklet with Crossway mm. called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Right. Well, I just got back from Argentina about four weeks ago. Two women asked, begged to see me. Both these women in their 40s. And they said, okay, you can have five minutes. He's going to speak, you know, about 15 minutes, so don't take long. And they come in, and with tears, they said, um, we both have cancer. We don't know what the future holds. And somebody gave us your little don't waste your cancer. This is all, this is all in Spanish through a translator to me. And we were in a church, in a, in a prosperity-type church, where we, we were perfectly miserable with our diagnosis and got little help. And when we read this, we felt uh, uh, exactly what we needed was here. So I would say my little bout with cancer, which had to come out, I mean, it was cancer, uh, that little bout was not just for me. It was for Argentinians 12 years later. Mm. Well, and we see that. You emphasize that in the book related to Paul. Paul's own suffering serves as this example for us, this encouragement for us to trust in the midst of that. And I think we see that in our own lives, people who have walked through hard seasons of life for all kinds of reasons, on the other side, they see how God then can use them in a unique way to comfort others. Absolutely. I mean, that passage in in First uh, Timothy where he recalls why God had saved him, namely in order that the mercy that had been shown to him might cause others who doubt the mercy of God, to have encouragement because God had, had saved him out of a Christian-killing life is incredibly, uh, I would say, like a paradigm for how we should think about our own suffering. And, and from my standpoint, and, and what I hope comes through in this book, is that Paul had been chosen, it says in Galatians, from his mother's womb, by Christ for this mission, which means that Christ, who is omniscient and knows everything that's coming to happen, that Christ let Paul become a Christ killer as a chosen apostolic spokesman, become a Christ killer before Damascus Road salvation. Why did he do that? And Paul tells us why. So that others who are Christ killers 
would take heart from the mercy shown to me. Yeah, that's amazing. That only comes, that, that, that view only comes from this confidence in, in God's sovereignty over these things. Right. And Paul had no doubt that God was absolutely sovereign over all things and over especially the great work of salvation. Mm. Yeah, and I want to return to that in a little bit. Um, but before we get there, you spent eight years kind of famously preaching through the book of Romans, uh, which means that you've spent a lot of time with Paul. And when you started, did you know it was going to take that long? Did you have a sense for, for just the scope that that would entail? I, I didn't have any plan to go eight years, but I had put off Romans for, what, 20 years? I mean, I thought, you come to a church, you must preach Romans. It's the Mount Everest of the mountains of the New Testament. And you, you must walk, climb up this mountain with your people. And I kept saying, I, I, can't, I can't do this because it's too big, it's too heavy, I'm not ready. And finally, uh, I said, if I put it off much longer, I'm not going to be able to do it. How long did you wait before you, you started? Let's see, I did Hebrews, I think in 98, 99. So I probably started in early 2000s, like 2001 or two. I can't remember exactly, but right around there. So that had been, I came in 80, something 22, wow. uh, 80, 90, yeah, 22 years or so had gone by, and I had not preached uh, all the way through. I'd done a series on Romans. I'd done First Peter, and I'd done Jonah, and I'd done um, the Thessalonians, and I'd done part of Acts, and... But you'd say it's because you were intimidated yeah, by it? Yeah, I was intimidated by it. Mm. That's, that would be exactly the right word. I was intimidated both by the, the, the magnitude of the con- kinds of controversial central questions. I mean, you better get justification right if it's the doctrine on which the church hinges, like Luther said, and it's central to this book. And it was, in those days, very heated how to understand justification with the new perspective being very, very prominent, more than it is now. And there was a lot of talk in our church about the precise way to understand imputation. And I knew at every text, I'm going to have to take a stand, take a stand, take a stand, take a stand, and take a stand with authority and confidence why you can't just waffle on justification say well folks i'm not sure what it means but let's try to do it anyway you 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 better have a firm clear idea so that intimidation is the right word doctrinally size-wise 16 chapters uh, historically considered the most important thing he ever wrote or the letter that's most important of all the letters in the history of the world romans has had a bigger impact than any other letter on the planet I mean, there are enough big reasons to think, who am I <laughs> to, to tackle this? And then you realize that's just a wimp. You're wimping out. Come mm. on, get serious. And so I, if you had asked me, I might have guessed four or five years. I don't mm. know. But I just, you know, eight may sound a little um, inflated because I did do Christmas things, Thanksgiving mm. things, Easter things, other things. I wasn't... Let's take a few Sundays out of there, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I wasn't like Martin Lloyd-Jones probably does. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're plowing ahead yeah, no right. matter what the holiday is. Uh, Mother's Day probably got her shake. <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel like as you look back, if you were to summarize what you, what you learned from that experience? 
Uh, how would you do that? Mm-hmm. I know it's probably impossible well, to do. Well, here's the first thing that comes to my mind. and it's, It may not be the most helpful thing, but it's the most front burner. Everywhere I go around the world where they have internet access, which is everywhere, <laughs> somebody says to me, I listened to all 250 tournaments, and it, they'll either say something like, it, it turned my theological world upside down, or they'll say, nothing has solidified me like Romans. So what's unexpected to me is that there's something about this series. Now, I've, I've preached on half a dozen other books that are complete packages at Desiring God on the web. Nobody says a word to me about those. I mean, my Hebrews thing, no, nobody comments to me, oh, Hebrews is great, blah, blah, blah. It's definitely not great. <laughs> Whatever reason, it's, it's not. But, but everywhere I go, that's a lot of sermons. And, and a guy, you know, a young guy in his 30s say, I listen to two every day going to work. And the guy will say, I'm a painter. I listen to Romans mm. for a month. Yeah. Uh, and on and on. So the, su- the surprising thing was not so much what I learned from the book. That's, at least I'm not talking about that yet. But what I learned about when you do a whole book series of expositions and leave out nothing. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of detail here. Like if anybody wants to know something about what I think about any phrase yeah. in the whole book, you can find it. You slow down where you need to slow down to really untangle every little bit. I think I did six sermons on verse 5 of chapter 5. I, I might get that wrong, but there were a lot. There were several. And that's where, where God uh, pours out his love by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Because I just think the experiential nature of the objective love of God. I mean, the juxtaposition in, in verses 5 and 6 there. He pours out, he pours out the love of God by his Spirit into our hearts. And then he says, for, and he refers to the historical work of Christ dying for our sins. Like, the historical work becomes the ground of the experiential work. And that just caused me to settle in there and say, folks, we can't just talk about uh, the cross as the apex of the love of God and not stop and say, has it been poured by the Holy Spirit into your heart? Do you know what that means? Have you tasted that? Can you bear witness to the reality of that experience? That's very threatening to people. It's easy to talk about the love of God. It's easy to lift your hands and sing about the love of God but to bear witness to the fact that God Almighty by His Spirit has moved into my life and has poured an experience of divine love into my heart, and I've tasted it. So that's why some of the places in my pilgrimage through Romans, I slowed down Mm. a lot. It wasn't just about communicating the, the information. You wanted to make sure that your people got it. Yes, and, and, and the it in Got It is reality. The other book that I did on uh, Expository Exaltation recently, I get at why, why in the world do you care if people get it? Because here's what I discovered. I was teaching through Philippians a few years ago to the seminary 
guys at our school and teaching them rigorously how to pick apart the argument and trace it with all the logical connectors for uh, in order that so that so that you could actually trace how every proposition relates to another proposition and it hit me that the question the study questions i was asking them were driving them through argument and logic and exposition to reality and they didn't know what i was saying they said what what do you mean what do you mean push through to reality and and i I wanted them to say, look, you can sort out an argument at the grammatical level and not know what you're talking about. Like if you take Romans 1, um, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, verse 15 of chapter 1, because I am not ashamed of the gospel, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Like there's three becauses or two becauses. And so you got three layers in the argument. So you can point that out to your people. Paul was eager to preach the gospel. Why was he eager to preach the gospel? Because it's power of God and salvation. Why is it power? Because in it, the righteous God. And when you're done with that, people are wild. Oh man, look, the logic of the passage. And they don't know what they're talking about. They don't, they haven't paused to say, what, what do you mean by power? How is it power? How is it power last night for you? How was it power at your mother's funeral? How was it power at the airport when you were talking? What do you mean power? Jabber, jabber, jabber. I mean, we so often just use words and sentences and logical relationships, and that's our exposition. That's what we've done. Preaching is over. And, And I'm saying, when you say you wanted to make sure that your people got it, I'm saying push through words like love, and heart and spirit and poor and say let's bank let's camp out on every one of those what's it like to have something poured into your heart where's your heart can you point to it what in the world are we talking about with the word heart what does poor means what like lemonade so so you want to you want to i mean i picture myself taking taking a text like a, a a rag and twisting and just twisting until every single juicy drop falls out of it. Do you think there's a sense in which uh, people who have been Christians for a long time who are more familiar just with these words, the words that we so often use, the scriptural words, good words, is there a sense in which you've noticed in your own heart perhaps even a familiarity that does breed a kind of surface-level understanding, not a heart-level understanding? Absolutely, and it, it's inevitable. I mean, unless you take steps to slow yourself down and to ask questions, you will pass quickly over glories. You will, you will rake instead of digging. I mean, my, my image is there are diamonds to be found in the, in the soil, and if you use a rake, you're not going to find them. And most people read like raking. They don't read like digging. I'll give you an example. Ye- yesterday, I preached in chapel at, at Bethlehem College and Seminary. My text was, worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain and purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people of language. I spent half an hour on this text. And when I got to the phrase, Worthy you to take the scroll, for you were slain, and purchase people for God. I paused and I said, for God, for God. What does that mean? Like, 
God got himself some slave labor. Is that what it means? Of course, this, no, 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 no. For God, purchased for God doesn't mean he, got, he bought some slave labor. I said, why not? Now, that's, what I mean by, what I, the reason I do that is because I've probably read that text a hundred times and never paused to ask, what does for God mean? We just kind of assume this or that, and, and it's not obvious. It is not obvious what for God means. And I think the text itself gets at for his treasure, for his family, for his kingdom, for his priests, for his magistrates. <laughs> but unless you stop and ask what appears to be an obvious question, like what does for God mean? You think, well, everybody knows what for God means. No, they don't. There's a lot of people who think Christ needed help to get his work done, and so he, he bought some helpers called Christians. And now we got to work our tails off to make sure God succeeds in the world. Mm. It's nothing like that. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of that there was this moment years ago when you were relatively young where one verse that you had read probably dozens, hundreds of times, but then finally something clicked and it resolved one of the greatest unresolved tensions of your life, uh, namely how it was that we could be called to do all things for God's glory, and yet we have this insatiable urge to pursue happiness. What was that verse that changed everything to you? That's the language you use. It changed everything for you. And how did that verse help you deal with that tension that you've been feeling? Well, if, if I'm remembering which, which verse I, I meant, um, the one I circle back to most often to capture the, the coming together of those two things is Philippians um, 1, 20, where Paul says, my, my heart's desire um, and uh, hope is that I might not at all be ashamed, but that Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So now there's the first half of my growing up in a home with Bill Piper, my dad, who every night that he was home as an evangelist who traveled a lot, prayed that God would get glory. <laughs> he pronounced it glory, not glory. Like he divided it between G-L-O-R-Y, not G-L-O-R-Y, but glory. And, and, and I, it was ringing my ears from the time I was little. God is demanding that I live for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So I got that. I got that growing up. And the other reality that you referred to was, here I am heading off to college, and I have burning, undeniable in my heart, I want to be happy. And you could put a lot of other words on that, satisfied, content, complete, free, whatever, but good, good feeling, right? Mm. I don't want to yeah. be miserable all my life. I don't want to be miserable. I want to be happy. And those felt and this is just my problem, I'm not blaming anybody, they felt like they were at odds. I'm supposed to live for God's glory, and my heart is saying, you've got to find a way to be happy. And, and I can remember lying in my bed in Elliott Hall, my, no, it was St. Hall, my senior year, pondering motives for why you would go do an inner city work in Chicago, 25 miles Away. This was at Wheaton College. Yeah, Wheaton College. 
And I didn't, I couldn't work out motives. I couldn't figure out motives. Glory of God, happiness of my soul. And this text comes along, plus Jonathan Edwards, plus Dan Fuller, plus a lot of experiences. And this text continues. So I, I stopped too early. He said, my, I want my Christ to be magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that's an argument. There's a for. There's a because clause. Christ is going to be magnified in my body by my death, if you just take half of it, like the death half, not the life half, because to me to die is gain. And I thought, okay, he's magnified in my body because my experience of death is experiences gain. How's that work? And I was ringing it. I was like, come on, I got to figure out how this works. Why is my experience of death as gain make him glorious? And, and the next phrase, of course, you keep reading, it says, because to, to die is to go and be with him, which is far, far better. Like, better for whom? <laughs> Me. So, gain there means when you die, you get all of Christ. And he calls it gain and better. And that gain and better is the ground for why Christ is getting glory. He's being shown magnificent. And it just clicked. Oh, he is most magnified in me when I'm most satisfied in him, especially in times of suffering and death. That changed everything. I mean, that's been my whole life. My whole life is devoted to Christian hedonism and trying to unpack that. Because I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, my dad taught me, the Bible taught me, Paul, bless his heart, taught me that I exist and the universe exists for the glory of God, which means to reflect that he is the supreme value, beauty, greatness in the universe. Show that. Make, make him look great. That's what magnify means. Make him look like he really is great. How? By being satisfied in him above sex, above money, above fame, everything. What would you say to the person who hears that and it, it almost seems impossible for them when they think about their own life? It maybe even feels like a, an undoable burden to them. How, how can the enjoyment of a Butterfinger blizzard be a burden? I mean, it, to even talk about the duty of delight, which I do, I wrote a book called that, uh, to call it a, a burden misses what delight is. <laughs> like if God says, if God comes to me, he says, now, I do have a commandment for you. I do have a yoke. You know, it's a light yoke and an easy burden. What is it? You need to enjoy me. What could be easier mm. or impossible? It's, it's the kind of hard you know, that was chapter 11, that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Chapter 7 of Matthew says, the way is hard that leads to life and few there be that find it. That's another one of those tensions that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. How can, it, how can the way be hard and the yoke be easy? And I think the answer is, what could be easier than enjoying the infinitely enjoyable unless you hate it? It's impossible. That's why when the rich young ruler walked away, Jesus said, 
it is impossible with man. How hard it is for a rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to people to get into heaven who love money. And the, th- the disciples throw up their hands and say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus didn't say, oh, you misunderstood me. He said, right, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Mm. And so when I find myself maybe experiencing the duty of delight as a burden, I know I'm in big trouble because I've got it all wrong. I've got to get on my face before God and say, have mercy. I'm turning this thing upside down. Take away the, the heart of stone. Take away all the, the creeping love of money and things and comfort and restore yourself as the central value and beauty of my life. How did you land on the term Christian hedonism? I, I know some people have been maybe somewhat critical of that term. They don't, they don't like it. They don't like the connotations or maybe ways it can be misunderstood or abused. How did you land on that? And, uh, and do you still think that is the best way to describe what you're talking about? I don't know if it's best, but I still use it. I'm using it more now than I ever have probably. Uh, I've never said that anybody needs to embrace it in order to embrace the reality that it stands for. I've always tried to use a, um, an escape hatch for people. I want them to believe the truth. I don't care about the moniker. Yeah. Um, I, I chose it probably because I read the word hedonism in a few places. C.S. Lewis in Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, says something like, this is what God requires of us. And if it be hedonism, so much the better. Hmm. There's not the devil who, who says that. Um, this is letters to Malcolm, not Screwtape. Um, I read it in Werner Eller. Nobody knows who that is today, but a book I was reading on, on possessions and simplicity. And he called the Christian life hedonism. Um, and then I said, well, I better look this up in the Dictionary of Philosophy. Is this even fair? You know, is this legitimate? Yeah. I'm, I'm just twisting this word all out of reality. The first definition in my, what, 10th grade Webster's dictionary was a life devoted to pleasure. Mm. Well, I said, okay, if that's the first definition, I'm not twisting anything. That's exactly what I mean. Jesus said, or Hebrew says about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, that's a life devoted to maximizing eternal pleasure by enduring the worst suffering imaginable. And I never, I mean, the first critical review I got from, from this back in 1986 came from a missions executive in California who said, ah, just another American prosperity mm. book. And I wrote to him and I said, did you read it? This, this book is designed to blow up prosperity preaching from the inside out. You, you didn't get it if, if that's what you think. And I've, I've, you know, the first edition of Desiring God did, did not have a chapter on suffering. And when I read these criticisms, like, oh, I mean, people hear Christian hedonism. They hear the word hedonism. They hear the word happy, and they just blow the book off. as Oh, no, they're a how-to-be-happy book, blah, blah, blah. They don't have any idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so I said, okay. I'm gonna, I added a chapter on suffering. And ever since then, I've, I've said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, especially 
through times of suffering. In other words, God is made to look glorious, not just when Christians are happy in the best times, but happy in the worst times. That's what's inexplicable and makes God look magnificent. So uh, I, I chose it because it's true and I chose it because it's provocative. Mm. Yeah, it does have that effect of getting you because it, it feels like an oxymoron. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it does capture that so well. Well, thank you, Dr. Piper, for spending some time with us today to discuss the history of Christian hedonism. We appreciate it. Thank you. That was John Piper reflecting on the history of Christian hedonism. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, 30 Reasons, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.